0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. We took a break from studying the Gospel according to Luke a little less than a year ago, last fall, and uh, looked at a number of other passages of God's Word. But as we begin a new school year, we thought it was a good time to go back to Luke. We just finished a study this summer through the book of Titus. And now we're going to pick up where we left off in Luke's gospel, and that's in chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we'll read the first eight verses. Please give your attention to God's holy, inerrant, powerful word. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When's the last time that you needed someone with power and authority to give you justice. When's the last time you cried out for justice? A situation where you were wronged and you need someone to intervene and make it right. I'm sure all of us have, to one degree or another, had that kind of experience, and it's a very helpless feeling. In God's providence, as I was preparing this sermon on the persistent widow and the unrighteous judge, I had a tiny little experience of what it feels like to feel helpless and to need somebody with power and authority to intervene. I was uh, coming out of the store in the parking lot for uh, Trader Joe's, and I got into my car with my wife, and I was talking to her and started to back out of my parking spot but what i didn't realize is that the guy across the way was also backing out of his parking spot at the same time and i didn't see him and the back corners of our cars collided and so we did the typical thing got out took pictures of the damage shared each other's information and and uh, went on with our lives well, i went back to the office and got back to work and a couple hours later i got a notice from my insurance company, my car insurance company, saying that the other driver had called in the accident and had said that I had backed into his parked car, which made it my fault, only my fault. And so I immediately set about to do the detective work of going and taking pictures and and, uh, drawing diagrams of how it really happened, and I, Put it all together and emailed it off to my insurance company to the adjuster who would have to determine who was at fault and i sat there anxiously overnight waiting to see whether they would believe my case i pled my case to the powers that be and i waited for justice to be done the next morning i got a call from the insurance adjuster saying thanking me for all the detective work that I did and saying she was convinced I'd prove my case that it was a mutual fault It was a 50-50 claim and that's how she was going to turn it in Vindication is sweet (laughs) Well, it was a really small thing really tiny fender bender really small thing But what a great reminder to me as I was preparing a message on this passage of what it's like to feel helpless and need somebody to provide justice. Since we've been taking a break from our studies in Luke, in order to understand the parable that Jesus tells here, parable is just a story, a story with a spiritual message. As we, before we look at Jesus' parable here in the beginning of chapter 18, since we haven't looked at chapter 17 for about nine months, let's go back to chapter 17 and get the context because when you study scripture, never take scripture out of context. And so we go back to chapter 17 to remind us of what we saw there a long time ago. We see, first of all, the driving verse of chapter 17 is verse 5. That's where the disciples of Jesus came to him, and they made a request of him that I hope is a prayer that you pray every day. As they say in verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. There is not as a prayer that deliver life than the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a prayer that the Lord is always honored by and is pleased to answer. Lord, increase my faith. So Jesus then tells two stories to illustrate to them what saving faith looks like. And he first of all tells a story about an unworthy servant who had to be taught that To obey is nothing that merits anything in the sight of the Lord. You're a servant, so a servant needs to have a humble attitude. And so humility is necessary to saving faith. The second story he tells is about ten lepers who all were healed by the Lord Jesus, but only nine of them came back to thank the Lord for what he had done for them. And so Jesus' lesson there is that saving faith is characterized by thankfulness for his grace. We need to be humble to live by grace, and we need to be thankful for the grace that's been given. That's what saving faith looks like. Well, he goes on here in the beginning of chapter 8 to tell this parable, and we're going to see that the message of this parable is that saving faith is characterized by persistence, particularly persistent prayer. But I do want to point out an important intervening passage. At the end of chapter 17, what you see there is where Jesus teaches about his second coming. The second coming when he returns to bring final judgment. He compares the final judgment when he returns one day in the future, he compares that to the days of Noah and the flood that destroyed mankind. And he also compares it to the fire and sulfur that destroyed the city of Sodom for its wickedness. These were days there were dark days even for the people of God that, required, that, uh, that brought suffering even for the people of God as they endured the judgment that came upon a fallen world. And so Jesus says in John chapter 16, he tells his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. Paul told the disciples of Christ in Acts 14 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And so, part of the way in which the Lord strengthens our faith is to bring us through tribulation. And that's why, as we can see the necessity of the context here, because at the verse 8 that we just read a moment ago, the very last verse of the passage for today, Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? The scriptures do tend to present the end times, the times before judgment descends from heaven, that it will be a time when those of genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be few. We need the Lord to strengthen our faith. And so, as we live between the two comings of Christ dead, and his second coming in the future to say, but we're not yet to the fullness of our ready, but the not yet, as the theologians call it. We're already saved, but we're not yet to the fullness of our salvation. We wait for the Lord to return to bring the fullness of our salvation. This is a time when our faith is tested. This is a time when we face suffering as believers, a time when we face injustice. We live in a world where the powers to be don't fear God or respect man. We live in a time where we are going to have to live with things that aren't right, where we're going to be wronged. And so this parable, the parable of the persistent widow, is told to tell us not only how to increase our faith but notice what jesus says at the beginning he says he told this parable to his disciples that they would learn that they ought always to pray and not lose heart there is a very important connection between persistent prayer and a growing faith and that's what we'll see this morning what does this story about a widow's persistence before an unjust judge what does it teach us about prayer The story begins with a character that is all too familiar in this fallen world, a corrupt judge, somebody with power, but with a heart that is corrupt. Jesus said that this judge neither feared God nor respected man. In other words, he lacked the two most, what I would call the most vital characteristics of somebody who would be a judge among men. He did not fear God, although that is a basic requirement for, for, to be a judge, because how can you know justice if you don't know the judge of all mankind? And he did not respect man. He was uh, uh, someone who was arrogant, somebody who was uncompassionate, did not care for justice, nor the people affected by injustice. He just was in it for what was best for him. He was a wicked, corrupt judge. The other character in the story is also a familiar character from Scripture, many stories in Scripture, a lowly, simple widow. In that culture, we would understand that a widow is someone who is poor, often oppressed, and without any kind of advocate or protector in this life. Widows... In the stories and historical accounts of scripture, widows are the epitome of helplessness in a fallen world society. And along with an orphan, a widow is the special focus of the care and concern of God according to his word. Should be also the special focus of the care and concern of the church, of you as a Christian. Exodus chapter 22, God says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will cry out to me. I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. In Psalm 68, verse 5, it calls God the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. In James chapter 1, verse 27, it says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. But understand that in this story, you and I are the widow. We are the ones that are helpless. We are the ones who are oppressed, the ones that are spiritually poor. We are God's people seeking what is true and right in a world that is turned upside down. This is really, the story that Jesus tells here is really a David and Goliath story. The widow had no advocate, The widow had no power. The widow had no money. The only thing she had was dogged persistence. She, it says, Jesus Jesus tells the story, he says she kept coming to the judge and saying, give me justice against my adversary. She kept coming. She came back to him again and again and again and again. This widow had the same superpower that my mother had when I was a teenager power to incessantly nag until she finally wore me down and I cut my hair or cleaned my room. (laughs) And in the story, the judge resists her for a while, but finally he gives in and he gives her justice. He says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. There's often a few precious jewels if you dig into the original language. It's translated there in the English. She will not beat me down by her continual coming. Literally, in the original Greek, it mean, it's the, a literal translation would be to strike under the eye. In other words, her continual coming gave him a black eye. As a judge, the mere point of the story is that this purely wicked this. Judge, this corrupt judge who had nothing but purely selfish and amoral reasons for everything that he did, eventually did the right thing and gave her justice because of her persistence. So, what's the lesson for us? What's Jesus trying to teach us about faith? What's Jesus trying to teach us about prayer? Is this what Jesus teaches? He's trying to say God is like the unrighteous judge? I mean, that just, that, that, that's even hard to, to get out of my mouth, that God is like an unrighteous judge, but it almost seems like that's what Jesus is saying. That God is like the unrighteous judge, we're like the widow, and if we pray long enough and hard enough with enough energy and enough longevity, we'll finally bend God to our will. Is that what the point of the story is? Many of us in State College have been praying and sending emails and letters to try to stop the powers that be from bringing a casino into our community. And our own Andrew Schaefer has been leading that charge and I'm really thankful that uh, one of our own members has been fighting so hard for us in that effort. But it's amazing that, you know, as far as the powers that be, all, the only power we have is persistence. Sending emails and letters and just getting the message out there that we oppose this, it's, it's just like the helpless widow. We have no power but our persistence. And so is that really, is God like this unrighteous judge? Is God like the powers that be that determine whether the casino comes or not? If we just persist and do it long enough and, and, and uh, vociferously enough that finally they'll bend to our will, is that the point of the story? Absolutely not. Matter of fact, the point that Jesus is making is that God is the opposite of the unrighteous judge. That's what you need to take home from this story. God is the very opposite of this unrighteous judge. He wants us, as we listen to this story, to think about how unlike the God that we serve is compared to this unjust judge. Prayer is not our attempt to change the will of God. I shudder at the thought that any prayer that I offer could change the perfect will of God. Prayer is not about manipulating God to do our will. Matter of fact, that's how pagans pray. That's how people outside of the kingdom pray. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, He says, and when you pray, speaking to His disciples, when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. They think that they'll beat God down to bend him to their will. Do not be like them, for your Father, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You see, Jesus here in this story is giving us a lesson in a very common Uh, form of teaching in the scriptures. How often do you hear a lesson taught in scriptures that end up with this, this application? It says, how much more? How much more will God answer your prayers than an unjust judge? In other words, if a corrupt judge who only cares about himself will give justice to a widow who wears him down with persistent requests, then how much more Will the God who loves you as a perfect, powerful, heavenly father be attentive to your requests and give you justice? Jesus asked rhetorically in verse 7, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, God will give justice to his elect. And I want you to notice he uses the term elect there. He calls the disciples of Christ, his own disciples, he calls them the elect. That's the title that is given to Israel in the Old Testament. It's the title that is given to the covenant people of God. In the New Testament, it speaks of the elect who were chosen from before the foundation of the world. Those who were chosen by God, by grace alone, to be saved, the ones for whom the Son of God, came to die on the cross for their sins. The one who sent his Son gave up his only Son to satisfy the justice that our sins deserved. The elect of God are the focus of his saving grace and his undying love. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Think about what God has done to you. If you're a disciple of Christ, if you put your trust in him, he chose you before the foundation of the world. He sent his son to die for your sins. He raised him from the dead to conquer the power of sin and death over you. He gave you the gift of forgiveness and the gift of righteousness by faith alone. And not only that, but he adopted you into his own family. He made you sons and daughters for all eternity. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. You see, the point of the story is how much God is different than an unjust judge. He wants us to focus on who it is that we are making our pleas to. God is everything that this unrighteous judge wasn't. First of all, God is just. God is holy. God cannot even look upon sin. And God is the very standard for justice. When you want to know what justice is, what's right, what's wrong, what's fair, what's unfair, you look to the character of God. He is the very definition of justice. And so in verse 8, Jesus says, I tell you, he will give justice to the elect speedily. You can count on it. Every injustice, every sin, every offense that's ever been committed in thought, word, and deed on the face of this planet will be punished. Either it has been punished for the elect at the cross in the past, or for those outside the kingdom, it'll be punished forever in the eternity of hell. But every sin will be punished. God is just. And that's how we endure injustice in this fallen world. Not that we just overlook injustice. We as Christians who serve a holy and just God cannot overlook injustice. What we do is we trust in the fact that justice is coming. And so secondly, we know that God is sovereign. Unlike the unrighteous judge, our God is sovereign. Nothing that has happened in history or that will happen in the future is contrary to his perfect plan. And his plan is described in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul says, I am sure this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is sovereign. He is just. He is sovereign. He's also wise. His will is perfect. You cannot improve his will. You cannot perfect his plan. You wouldn't want your prayers to mess with his perfect plan. He is all wise. He is sovereign and his plan for all of history is perfectly wise. But most importantly, as First John tells us, God is love. Everything that he does, everything that God does in history is motivated by One of two factors, or most of the time by both factors, is to reveal his glory, first of all, secondly, to do what's best for his elect. Everything he does is is usually both to reveal his glory and to do what's best for his elect, his chosen people, his children, his adopted children. Even as we suffer, we know that God is just, He is sovereign, he is wise, and he is love. Jesus understood this. Think about it. As Jesus hung on the cross, enduring suffering that is beyond our wildest imaginations, as he bore the wrath of God that your sins deserve, my sins deserve, all the sins of the elect deserve from all of history, as he bore the wrath of God, what did he do? He prayed. He prayed to the father, even when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went to the father. He trusted in a God who is just, sovereign, wise, and loving as a father. In Luke 11, Jesus told a parable that was very similar to this one. In, in that story, a friend, comes to, uh, a, a friend comes to his friend's house at midnight. And this friend wants his other friend to give him bread. And the friend in the house says, I'm just knocking and keep asking. And finally, I forget it, no way. Well, the friend at the door keeps knocking and keep asking. And finally, he realizes this is silly. I just get up and give him the bread and I go back to sleep. And so finally he gets up and responding to the persistence, he comes downstairs and gives him the bread. Very similar story. What's interesting is that Jesus follows that story in Luke 11 with a lesson, how much more lesson about fathers. Listen to what he says. What father among you, if a son asked for fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asked for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If sinful fathers and grumpy friends and unrighteous judges will respond favorably to persistent requests, how much more will the God who sent his son to die for you, to redeem you, to give you the riches of the eternal kingdom, how much more? Will he be attentive to your prayers and give you what's best for you? Romans chapter 8, the end of that glorious crescendo at the end of Romans chapter 8, the crescendo of the gospel at the end of Romans 8, in verses 31 and 32, Paul gives what is in essence another how much more lesson. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's already given you the greatest thing and giving giving you his son. God always hears our prayers. He always hears when you pray. He is attentive to your prayers if you're one of his people, one of his adopted children. And he always cares with a perfect fatherly love. Does that mean when we ask for a fish, we get a fish? No, we just know we're not going to get a serpent. Does that mean when we ask for an egg that we're going to get an egg? No, we just know that we're not going to get a scorpion. When we ask our loving Heavenly Father for anything, we get one of three answers. First of all, the answer may well be yes. If it's in line with His perfect will... I don't know of any father who has any greater joy than to give his children what is best for them when they really want it. If my child comes to me and asks for something they really want and I know it's good for them, I rejoice to give them that. I'll move mountains to give them what they want. I delight to give them what's best for them. And so if that's what our prayer is like, then he says lovingly, gladly, joyfully, yes. But he might say, wait. He might say, the timing's not right and my timing is perfect trust me trust me in my timing wait be patient i love you i want what's best for you and what's best for you is that you wait in faith and trust me or he might say no but understand that if he says no to your prayer it's only because he has something far better i mean honestly If I ask God for a fish, I expect him to give me a buffalo chicken sandwich because I don't like fish. (laughs) It's gonna be something better. The answer to every no is wait or I have something better for you, you need to trust me. Trust me. That's why faith and prayer is so intimately connected. But then we have to deal with verses seven and eight. Jesus says there, Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. How does that fit? Does it seem like God answers, and gives justice speedily? Doesn't it seem like he waits a very long time? But that's our perspective. We are human beings who live for 70 or 80 years, our perspective is very limited and it's very short, and it's very horizontal. That's what prayer does. Prayer lifts you to the throne of heaven to give you God's perspective on history, God's perspective on the world, God's perspective on your life. And his perspective is different than your perspective. Think about his timeline. We've been waiting. Jesus promised that he would come back and bring the fullness of his salvation 2,000 years ago. We've been waiting what seems to us an interminably long time. But think about Abraham. Abraham was given promise of the first coming of Christ 2100 years before he came. The Israelites were delivered in the exodus from Egypt in around 1450 BC. And in that, they saw that only as a foreshadowing of the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom. David lived a 1000 years before Christ. Nehemiah lived 450 years before Christ. And so they waited a long time. But God was faithful and he sent Jesus Christ at just the right time. And Jesus Christ is coming again. And it will be at the perfect time. Wait, pray, and trust him. As Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, Every generation is going to have people that come and, and a thousand years is one. Look, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should receive repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He will give justice and it will be speedy once we have his full eternal perspective. The Bible consistently from beginning to end calls us to persistent prayer no matter what our circumstances are, good or bad. Romans chapter 12 verse chapter 12 verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Colossians 4 verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, persistent prayer isn't continuous prayer in the sense that we might, in a real uh, simplistic way, think of it. We still have to diaper our babies and mow our lawns and drive to work, and, you know, there's some things that are going to pull our attention away from direct prayer to our God. But the best illustration of what continuous prayer or praying without ceasing, the best illustration that I've ever heard was a teacher who just said, think about a compass. The needle on a compass points to north. That's its default. It always points north, unless you take your finger and you push it. You can push it away from north, but what happens when you take your finger away? It goes back to north. And he said, that's what continuous prayer looks like. That's what prayer without ceasing looks like, is that's your default. That yes, Things are gonna pull you away from direct communion with your Lord. But your default is, in your quiet moments, in your times of stillness, is to always run back to the Lord. That's your default of your life, is to run back to the Lord in prayer. The disciples asked Jesus, increase our faith. And Jesus responded with this story about persistence in prayer. What he's saying, is that your faith and your prayer reflect one another. Your faith and your prayer by necessity go together. Your prayers express your faith and your prayers strengthen your faith. So when you want your faith to increase, persist in prayer. Jesus, in this story, was preparing his disciples for 2,000 years of waiting and suffering and facing injustice and persecution. While we wait for justice, we pray, come soon, Lord Jesus, He is coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you. thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the forgive of what is good and delivering us into the kingdom of your light. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin that we have through the cross. Thank you for the victory over death and sin we have through the resurrection. Thank you for the adoption we have as sons and daughters into your kingdom by your grace and by your love. Lord, teach us to pray and teach us persistence in prayer that our faith might increase. Thank you for the privilege and thank you for the knowledge we have that you love us more than we could ever possibly understand. Help us to trust you more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.